0: Hello uh, MAFRA friends, uh good to be back with you. Uh, we're continuing our series in 1st John. Um, so I'm going to read 1st John chapter 2 uh, into chapter 3 in a moment. But before we do that, let's pray. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here again today. We thank you for uh, the treasures of your word. We thank you that we can gather around it. And so we pray now that uh, in the same way that you authored these words by your servant John through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us about your son through the, Lord, uh, through the Holy Spirit this morning to uh, convict us and um, reassure us and uh, grant us a, a sure and, and certain knowledge and hope in, uh, in the gospel of our salvation we pray in Jesus' name, Amen well, I, uh, In my previous church there was a lady who came to it uh, she'd, been, she'd not that long become a Christian and she'd been going to another church and uh, she came to us and she told me that she'd been to see her previous pastor and she said, you're not really teaching us the whole Bible. And he said, well, different churches teach different parts of the Bible. So she asked me what I thought about that. And I said, well, I'm a bit concerned about that, actually, because uh, the Apostle Paul tells us we should teach the whole counsel of God. Uh, we don't get to be selective. So that's our policy here at MAFRA. We'll we aim to teach through the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments. But then she said, well, how can you know when you're being taught the truth? And that's a pretty good question, because everybody says they're teaching you the truth. So how can you know that you're being taught the truth? Well, it's those sorts of issues that that uh, John is addressing in his first letter, in 1 John. Um, how can you be sure that you've been taught the truth? How can you be sure that you are a child of God and that you're receiving eternal life? That's why John writes. John writes... Repeatedly, he says, "I want you to know. I want you to know." And so, it's possible to know. It's not guesswork. Uh, it, it's something that you can be quite sure of. And First John is a very important part of the New Testament for that reason. Now, we've seen previously that the situation that John's addressing is one where people have left the church, and that's caused consternation to the people that have remained because they're wondering, "Well, where does the truth lie?" So, last week we looked at First John chapter two, where in verse 19. John talks about people that he calls antichrists, people who are opposed to Jesus and his message. And he says, they, that's the antichrist, they went out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So he says to continue with the community that's been formed around the teaching, which is based on the eyewitness reports of the apostles. Stay there, don't depart from it. And so he says to them in verses 26 to 27 of chapter 2, I write things... These things to you were about those who were trying to deceive you. So there was a truth issue at stake. These people had gone out and they were trying to deceive those who had remained. And obviously their teaching was attractive. If it wasn't attractive, if there wasn't some temptation to follow them, then John wouldn't have had to write. So here's a, here's a thing. What? A, let's put ourselves back in their shoes or sandals for a moment. Um, what if one of those antichrists was a close friend or even a family member what if the price of remaining connected in relationship with that close friend or family member was that you had to join them is that acceptable well John would say no because truth is truth John would say don't go don't go out after them and so first John confronts a very real danger then but it's also a danger which is present with us now because we are in a world where there are many competing claims for truth. Uh, So not long ago, a family member of ours uh, asked me why it is that certain books make up the New Testament and certain books don't. And so she'd been uh, got at by a Facebook friend who was trying to tell her that there were books that should be in the New Testament that, that weren't, and we'll have to deal with those sort of issues at another time. But she didn't really know how to answer She knew that the New Testament is God's word, but she was wanting to know why these others aren't. There are good answers to that. We haven't got time to go into it today. But it was affecting her, I suppose. Uh, So we we need to be careful about what we believe. So for John, one of the key words in this letter is abide, which means, we looked at it last time, abide is an old-fashioned word that means to continue or to remain, to stay with the program. And so the people who have left, the Antichrist have not abided, they haven't continued or remained, and so John proposes three tests by which those who want to remain true to Jesus will be able to work out what is true and what is false. So there's the truth test, there's the love test, and then there's the obedience test. And so the truth test is who is teaching what the apostles, the eyewitnesses, the people who had received the original gospel message from Jesus, who's teaching that accurately? So there's the truth test. There's the love test. Who is demonstrating the love that Jesus commands must be the evidence of people being his, his friends, followers and children? Uh, who, who's living in love? And then there's the obedience test. Whose lives stack up in terms of doing the things that Jesus said must be done? And there's a fair bit of overlap between these. They all connect with each other. So 1 John chapter 2 verses 28, uh, from ch- verse 28 down to chapter 3, 24. Let's read it together. First John chapter 2. Uh, the apostle writes, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin no one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him little children let no one deceive you whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous whoever makes a practice of sinning Is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this shall we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is stronger than our heart, is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now before we go any further you'll notice there the frequent use of the word brothers. Uh, it does not just refer to men or males. Uh, the, the The word literally in Greek is brothers, but uh, in those days it was used for mixed audiences it 's a bit like saying you guys um, it means everyone there uh, it just means a group of people who have come together and and, and are related to each other um, in, in in a very close fashion but um, even though it 's a gendered sort of term it, it does not it does not rule out women they 're part of this as well so what we're seeing here is that the true fellowship with Christ is seen in love and in righteousness. They're the tests that you can, you can determine who's in the true family of God. And so the first verses from chapter 2, verse 28, down to chapter 3, verse 3, tell us that we can have confidence, um, not shame, when Jesus returns, when, when the Lord Jesus Christ appears. And so this is a transitional section. It's bridging the last section that dealt with the antichrists and their doings. And it goes on to the next section. So this is a bridge. This is a transitional section. And the, the people have been threatened by these liars and deceivers, these antichrists. And so again, they're, they're commanded. John says, this is what you must do. You must abide. You must continue in Jesus. Don't fall for the deceivers, lies and leave with them. So you've got to remain with Christ. You've got to follow the teaching that's heard, been heard from the beginning. The, 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 the message that's uh, the product of the eyewitness reports. Accept no innovations. Have you ever seen uh, products that advertise themselves that way? Uh, they'll say, uh, you've seen the rest, now try the best. You know, we are still the original. So it has been an advertising ploy. You know, We are the original and the best. Accept no imitations. That's how it is with the gospel message. The gospel message was lived out by Jesus, was handed on and taught to his disciples. It was embodied in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the promise of his return. And it's the apostles, as the eyewitnesses, who bear that and who write about it. We've got to stay anchored in the truth that they're they're witness to. That's what it means to remain. Now, there's a result of this remaining, and that's confidence, because the Bible's very clear: Jesus will return. Uh, there's a choice of two options here. To remain in Christ, to remain anchored in his teaching, uh, devoted to an apostolic community, means that when Jesus returns, you'll be able to face him with confidence, not with shame. Now, the shame that John has in mind here it possibly reminds us of the shame that Adam and Eve experienced in, in Genesis chapter 3, where God was walking in Eden in the cool of the afternoon, and they hid in shame from him because they're Their sin made them not want to be in his presence. Now when Jesus returns, John says, abiding in him now will result in confidence, not shame, on that day. Imagine being exposed on the day that Jesus returns as someone who had never really known him or seen him. And so John says that we must abide in him by demonstrating that righteous living and that will be the seed of our confidence on that day. Now righteousness is not the basis of our acceptance. It's not that we have to make ourselves righteous and then God will accept us and then we can be confident of Jesus' return. The righteousness that is the product of our lives comes because we've been born of God. It means that we've entered into a relationship with God by trusting in the saving work of his son. And so into chapter 3 verse 1, that famous verse, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So that's a wonderful change of status. John says, if you believe in Jesus, you've become a child of God. You are one of God's children. And so um, he goes on in verse 2 and says, Beloved, we are God's children, and ne- uh, God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John's saying there ought to be a family resemblance. Um, you can look at people, it's it's what everybody does. Uh, when a baby's born, who does the child look like? Does it look more like mum or dad? As children grow, you'll see characteristics starting to emerge, and I say, oh, and that he's just like his mum, and that she's just like her dad. Um, as parents, we often sort of blame all of our children's failings on the other part. But John's saying there should be a family resemblance uh, in God's children. We need to be like our father, and like his eternal son. Now this term children of God is one that needs to be understood carefully because it's very often misused. So just to, to, to depart from our theme for the moment, I just want to think about what, what that idea of being a, a, a child of God or what the children of God means. Um, in the late 19th century, in the Western world, particularly in Europe where a lot of ideas have spread from, uh People were becoming aware of other cultures in a way that they just hadn't been before. And so travel and mass communications had combined to make it possible to know lots of things that had previously just been unknowable. And so it became very obvious that not everybody believed in Christian things and there was lots of other different religions around the world. And so that led liberal Christian scholars, people who had departed from the essential truth of the Bible, who'd begun to doubt whether the Bible was actually God's word, it led them to search for what they, they thought was the, the core of all religion. They wanted to find the things that were common to all faiths. Now you've probably heard people say, oh, I believe that all religions lead to God. Um, it's a popular kind of thing to to say or believe, but you can only say that uh, if you don't know about all religions, because all religions are not basically the same. They they, they differ about many things that some religions that believe in lots of gods. There's some religions that only believe in one God. Christians believe in one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to know that God. That makes Christianity different from every other one. But there was a German theologian, Adolf von Harnack, who wrote a book called What is Christianity? And in that book, he said that Christianity's essence, the core of Christianity, boiled down to this. The universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Now, that's a phrase which I've heard many people use. That's what they say they believe. Uh, The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. Uh, So you will hear people say, well, aren't we all God's children? And the answer, according to the Bible, is no. We're all God's creation. But to be one of God's children is something that comes by virtue of the new birth. We must be born again. So that's what John Uh, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3 if you want to see the kingdom of of God you must be born again. John chapter 1 talks about how the children of God are born not of natural descent nor of human decision but born of God and so John amplifies that thought in his letter. The children of God are people who have been born again, remade uh, new creations in Christ. Um, They're not the product of human birth they're the product of spiritual rebirth so John says we are God's children now and the idea of being a child of God here is that good children do what their parents do good children obey their parents and so John says when we, when Jesus appears uh, we will see him John the eyewitness has seen him and now he says that if you believe in the message that he preaches then or writes about, uh, then you've seen him by faith. You've seen Jesus by faith. So now we see him by faith, but one day all believers will see Jesus by sight. The result of that is that our glorious future needs to shape how we live in the present. If we will be like him when he appears, we need to be like him now. This is the whole idea of the family resemblance. And so the test here is that these antichrists were probably unconcerned with righteous living. Uh, We know from Christian history and from Greek philosophy that there were some who thought that the body, the human body, the, the material body, was virtually irrelevant. They said, what matters is the soul. And so they said, what happens in the body doesn't really matter. It doesn't concern us so long as we have a pure soul. And so for that reason, there were some people who made this soul-body division who were quite cheerful about going on sinning. And it seems that that's at least a part of what these antichrists believe, that deeds done in the body don't matter, and you can go on your merry way sinning so long as your soul's basically all right. John says, if your spirit has been remade by Jesus, then you will live a life that more and more conforms to the pattern that he set. John actually says that these antichrists with their lack of concern for righteousness are not amongst those who have seen him or known him. And he goes on to demonstrate that. But just another thing here, just a little bit of a sidebar. Um, At various points over my preaching journey, I've had people say, Steve, we don't hear people talk about the second coming much anymore. Now, I'd like to think that I refer to it fairly frequently because I believe that Jesus will return. I don't know when, no one does. Uh, So perhaps... I don't talk about it, or we don't talk about it in the way that people have become used to. But the fact is, Jesus will return. But in the New Testament, the subject of Jesus' return is not ever introduced as a matter for speculation. It's When it's talked about, it's always talked about as a spur to holy living. And that's what John does here. John says he's coming back, so live now as you will live then. Because when he comes, you're going to be like him. And so we get back to the, um, the evidence, back to the, the tests. And so verses 4 to 10, we have what could be called the obedience test. So since he died to save us from sin and to abolish sin, that means we need to abandon sinful ways. Verses 4 and 6 talk about how sin is lawlessness. Uh, what's being spoken of there is the ongoing practice of sin, a lifestyle characterised by a, a complete unconcern about sinful behaviour. So notice the stress there is on those who keep on sinning in verse 6. John says that's evidence that they haven't abided in Christ. Uh, They've never actually seen or known him. But here's a challenge. Haven't we already seen in the letter that everyone sins? We all keep on sinning. We know from experience that sin is a constant problem. Uh, We're told in chapter 1 that if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. Well that's true. no one is without sin, and so that's why in verse nine of chapter one, we're told that we keep needing to confess our sins but what's being spoken of here in chapter three is the unbroken habit of sin a person who makes a practice or keeps on who they actually abide in sin rather than abide in christ and you'll notice this with people who have their consciences is not troubled by things that are ungodly think sins of a kind that jesus died to save us from Um, this is a departure from the apostolic faith so the deception in verses 7 to 10 uh, if if they follow after the teaching of those who are unconcerned about sin uh, what that means is that their father is not god their father is the devil So, like I've said before, when people make mistakes about Jesus, they very often make mistakes about his person, who he is and his work, what he came to do. Now, what was Jesus' work? Well, according to verses 5 to 8, he came to take away sin and to destroy the devil's work. And so children of God, genuine children of God, because of what Jesus has done, can't continue to live lives characterised by the sinful works ...that Jesus came to die to save us from. It's our sin that caused it to be necessary for Jesus to die. We can't continue to cultivate a lifestyle... characterized by the sin that made Jesus' death essential. And so those who persist in the works that Jesus came to destroy... ...betray their true family of descent. They're of the devil, not of God. So to be born of God means to be cleansed of all sin... ...and all righteousness. It's a whole new start... Uh, It's a whole transformation. And so verse 10 says, by this, it is evident. So in other words, these are the people to look out for. And so we can say that someone who is unconcerned about sin, someone who has ceased from the daily battle, someone perhaps who claims to be without sin, or someone who downplays or excuses or justifies their sin. Now I had someone who came to see me once to talk about um Well, he wanted to tell me that he thought it was quite fine for him to continue in an unbroken pattern of sinful behaviour of a kind that the Bible says is characteristic of someone not receiving the kingdom. And he was there to tell me that what he was doing was fine and he wasn't troubled by it. And I told him he was walking on a very, very dangerous path. And so he looked me in the eye and said, don't you ever sin? And he was trying, And of course, my answer is, of course I do. So he was using that as a justification for him continuing to sin. And you can't do that. If you cease to be concerned with sin, then you should be worried. Right? If your conscience is tender about sin, then repent of it quickly. Like First John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us. But this fellow had nothing of that. And so he was giving every appearance of not actually being a child of God. And so John says you want to watch out for these sort of people and you want to be very careful of hanging around with them. But then you might say, well, but aren't we supposed to witness to them? And I've said this before and I'll say it again. The question is, the challenge for us is, are they having more of an impact on us or us on them? Because if they're having an impact on us, we've got to be very, very wary. It's not for nothing that the Apostle Paul wrote, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Christian obedience really does matter. Obedience to the standard that's been set by the apostles, the eyewitnesses, the author of scripture. So moving on into chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, we get the love test. And John says this is a test of whether you're living in life or living in death. And so he says, using that phrase, the beginning again, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now he gives two examples, he gives the, the the negative test, he says don't be like Cain because Cain demonstrated a complete lack of love when he killed his brother um, but then he gives a positive test and he says the test of genuine Christian love is to be like Jesus who laid down his life for the brotherhood, for everyone and so we need to be, if, here's another famous uh, 3.16 verse, John 3.16 is famous justly uh, but 1 John, John 3.16, By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that doesn't mean we're going to die for the sins of others. We can't do that. But what it does mean is that we will put the needs of others ahead of our own because we want to see other people built up. So Jesus laid down his life as the good shepherd. That's what we read in John chapter 10. And the test of genuine Christian discipleship of being a child of God is that we live lives devoted to serving the practical needs of of fellow believers as well. Verse 18 says that deeds matter much more than words at this point. So there's the obedience test and there's the the love test and there's the truth test, continue to be committed to the truth of the gospel. So verses 19 to 24, uh, this is a a wrap-up of this section with true abiding the true test of of truth and, and love and obedience and so verse 19 John says by this shall we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him John wants you to be sure that you belong so that you can be ready to meet Jesus and not shrink in shame from him at his coming and so the tests combined where truth and love and obedience all merge where one leads to the other and each reinforces the other You can't say, well, I'm going to be big on truth, but I'm going to leave love and obedience aside. Two out of three is not enough. John says that the true disciple, the true child of God will be committed to all three. And so they combine in practical loving action towards fellow believers. Now, when John writes there that God is greater than our hearts, what he means is that God's not stingy. God is rich in mercy, the Apostle Paul tells us. He's, He's free in his forgiveness. And so when, when John commands us to love generously, he's saying love like God does. God's greater than our hearts. And so we need to bear that family resemblance. Our love needs to be a reflection of the love that we have each received from the Father who's forgiven us. We need to be people of generous hearts. So verses 21 to 22 tell us that being generous like God means to abide. It means to be confident that we are his children, that he is indeed our Father. And that confidence will be expressed in prayer. So if you're lacking in confidence in God, don't be surprised if you don't pray much. Uh, But when we know God, when we love him and are filled with his spirit, we'll want to meet with him. And so because of that, we, we will regularly go to him and we'll be confident that he will answer our prayers because the more and more we know of him, the more our prayers will be confirmed to asking from him the things that he wants most for us. And so verse 23, as we finish up, John writes, this is his command that we believe. There's the truth test. In the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. That's the love test. Just as he has commanded us. That's the obedience test. The true children of God will believe what's true. They'll love wholeheartedly and they'll obey cheerfully. And so John says to abide, to remain, to continue in the teaching you've received from the beginning about the Son of God who is from all eternity, who came to destroy the works of the devil. And then you'll live lives now that anticipate the life that you'll live in the eternal state. Now John was an expert on the subject of Antichrist because he'd had at least two experiences of seeing them. So in John chapter 6, we read there that many disciples left Jesus. And Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away too? And Peter said, well, where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Correct. Don't be swayed, even if many should leave. There's the old hymn that says, though none go with me, still I will follow. Stay with the truth, no matter how unpopular it is. The world may hate you, but remember that it hated Jesus first. But then John had another experience of an antichrist, Judas. He'd been with the disciple band since the very early days and then he left. He went out from them, according to John John 13. He went out and it was night. So John's seen it firsthand and now he's seeing it again in one of his communities, these people that he loves very dearly and he's very concerned for. And so John writes to tell us that true fellowship with Christ, to be the true children of God, will be seen in an ongoing commitment of abiding, of remaining, of continuing In the truth of the Lord Jesus, in deeds of love, and in righteous living. Because God's children bear the family likeness. Like father, like son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's just so much to to take in from these words, so we pray that you would help us to to think on them, to, to meditate on them, to take them to heart and to go over them again and again. Uh, we pray that you would confirm our standing and our status with you uh, by your spirit that we indeed have been people who have been convicted by the truth about your son who have turned from our sin and entrusted that he died to forgive us for our sin and that we're seeking with every fibre of our being to live godly lives um, in imitation of him in anticipation of his return so that we won't shrink in shame at his coming. Father, I pray that if there are any here today listening that uh, that don't know you as Father uh, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, and through his saving work on the cross, I pray that you would work very powerfully in their hearts to convince them of these things uh, so that they won't be ashamed on that day when he returns. But Father, for those of us who do love you, uh, forgive us our sins, help us each day to join in that battle afresh of um, putting to death the old sinful nature, And I pray that by your spirit you would uh, cleanse us through and through, make us righteous, and help us to live now as we trust that we'll live then in anticipation of that great, great day when Jesus comes to make everything new. So we pray all these things in his name. Amen. See you next time.